Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. On this episode of Jaws of Justice, first, host Bev Livingston speaks with Matthew Solomon, award-winning filmmaker, about his recent documentary, Reimagining Safety. In the film, which was shown by Decarcerate KC, UMKC's Clear My Record Project, and the Plaza Branch of the KC Library on June 14th, 10 experts discuss how policing and incarceration create more harm than good, why the system persists, and what changes can be made to make everyone safe. Bev and Matthew will tell listeners about that discussion. The issue is not trying to defund police. The issue is trying to position police to take appropriate actions. Reform is certainly needed because people do not feel safe when police are involved. We'll play the calendar in the middle of the hour. During the second half of Jaws of Justice, host Craig Lubo speaks with Mike Fonkert, Deputy Director of Kansas Appleseed, a statewide advocacy organization working to build a just Kansas. Craig and Mike Funkert will discuss ideas to reform the current system, which has mass incarceration and many barriers to successful re-entry into society. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Greetings, Matthew. So glad to have you as our guest today, talking about reimagining safety and the awesome film that I viewed at the public library when you were in our city last week. How are you? And do you want to start with telling our audience how you came into creating such an awesome needed film and documentary? And to our listening audience, thank you for tuning in today, and hopefully you'll have some great takeaways as to how we can help change our society. We want you to know that at the Plaza Library in Kansas City, Missouri, we had an opportunity to view Reimagining Safety. And while some people hear about defunding the police and, and taking away some of the valuable resources that are used to help keep our community safe, we need to kind of reposition some of those things. And the documentary did an awesome job in helping us understand that when you have a crisis and you call 911, you don't always need to have force to get people to calm down or to solve the problem. And reimagining safety addresses so many of those kinds of situations that could be handled if we had a support person to accompany a police call or have someone that specializes in mental health or abuse of children or what have you without having someone be arrested and family life interrupted because we did not handle the situation appropriately. So reimagining safety Safety is something that is a reality and working together and having conversations that help us end the excessive force image Mm -hmm. and other bad 
appearances that the police had because some of them were traumatized according to the documentary from the calls that they are dealing with they're not prepared. So we need to work together and reduce policing and respond to community needs effectively. Well, Bev, this is Terry, and we're going to, this is a good opportunity for me to tell listeners. And before we start this very important interview with Matthew Solomon, the filmmaker, listeners, Bev Livingston is a host on Jaws of Justice who just won a hometown media award. 2023. And Bev, we are so proud of you. Congratulations. Thank you very, very much, Terry. It's an honor and it was quite a surprise because this is a a volunteer opportunity that I take very seriously and I'm passionate about incarceration and matters that deal with that. So to be recognized nationally for the interview I did with Kyle Smith and Determinations Inc. is quite an honor and thank you very much. And listeners, If we can get this show going today, you're going to have an opportunity to learn more about how communities can become safe without over-policing and without excessive force. And in terms of our area, the state of Missouri, Kansas City is actually, our police is governed by the state office and our I would like to talk about Juneteenth. Juneteenth isn't taught in schools and as I was listening to some information and some very important uh, documentaries on YouTube I learned that Juneteenth is something that happened in the state of Texas that really prevented everybody from being a part of the emancipation and the freeing of slaves in the USA. Texas didn't want their economy disturbed by the the sharecropping and the cotton picking that was going on. And and it took a while for Juneteenth to really catch up with what the rest of the country was doing. However, the Jim Crow laws, as many of us know, still exist. The new Jim Crow, which Michelle Alexander explains so well in her book, The New Jim Crow, really helped us understand how those who pushed back the black voters, the the work that was being done for the intimidation that black voters and persons incarcerating were experiencing, the segregation attack on equality, separate but equal, it still happened. It's just kind of disguised, and some things are still very blatant. Justice in Policing Act in Minnesota 2020 has yet to pass. I believe it passed in the House, but it has not in the Senate, and of course not signed by the governor. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I will say that the Juneteenth grandmother that I met in the YouTube documentary she walked to express the seriousness and the importance of what was going on in all right hello wonderful greetings matthew shall we begin our interview now would you like to tell our audience who you are and how you came about doing the insightful documentary that explores the challenges of addressing police abuse and misconduct yeah, yeah, and thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Sorry about the <laughs> technical issues leading in. Um, yeah, I, you know, as far as the documentary goes, I, it was, it's a 
product of my my life, you know, and, and um, uh, being aware of and observing, uh, you know, the discrepancies in policing and incarceration from the time I, w- I was young and how, you know, I as a white male had different experiences than my friends who were black. And, and so, you know, coming up in elementary school, I went to very integrated, very um, uh, diverse schools through, you know, elementary, middle school and high school. And then I was actually a music student at the University of Southern California in the early 90s at the same time as the Rodney King beating, the L.A. riots, the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, and as a music student in my general ed courses, I was really interested in sociology. And so I was learning about how societies were created, how laws were made. And, you know, one of my professors at that time distinctly said something that, that has carried me through this whole time, which is the laws in a society are made by the people in power to keep them in power. And that made a lot of sense, especially with what was going on you know, like I said, regarding Rodney King and the L.A. riots and, and later on the, the Rampart scandal with LAPD. And so that stayed with me. Uh, I went into music. I was a professional musician. I got into filmmaking. Um, and then I started doing conflict resolution work. And I was trained and really interested in communication and uh, bringing people together and helping people to uh, work together and dismantle the systems that were keeping us separate. And I was doing that uh, right up until the pandemic started. I was traveling all over doing workshops and interventions with corporations and colleges. And when the pandemic started and we couldn't go anywhere, I went back to school. And so I got a master's in public administration at Claremont Lincoln University and going through that program following the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, everything that was going on around that, I was applying the public administration uh, coursework around sustainability and communities and government and policy to the issues with policing and incarceration. And I became very interested in I, I could recognize that what we had wasn't working. And then the question was, well, what do we do if not this? And so in my studies, as I was coming up to do my master's thesis, one of my academic advisors was like, we know you're a filmmaker. Why don't, instead of, and we know you can write a paper, instead of writing a paper, why don't you make a documentary? And so I did. <laughs> and, and the documentary was this film. And I was able to interview 10 amazing people, you know, including the district attorney of L.A. County and USC law professor Jody Armour and, uh, you know, just an amazing group from different perspectives. It was really important for me to include activists and uh, policymakers and mental health professionals and former police officers uh, all of whom have different perspectives, but could all agree that what we have now isn't working and we need to replace it with something else, uh, mostly, you know, including investing in communities and people and and that sort of thing. So that, that's how the film came about. It was an academic project. Um, 
you know, I submitted it for class. I started submitting it to film festivals, and and then I I started getting requests from different communities across the country, and then in Canada and Germany and South Africa asking for screenings, and so it's kind of taken off from there. Well, it was a, a very hard-hitting, outstanding contemporary collection of news footage. And the news footage that you used was expressing what so many of us could actually wrap our, our brains around because it's happening in our own neighborhoods, in our own cities. And as you began to allow people that were interviewed in this film to express what was going on in Canada, in Los Angeles, in many of the areas that you mentioned, I'd like for you to share with us what was the common denominator with the persons that you interviewed and the areas in the country that were the same or what was that pattern that showed this is the problem here, there, and kind of everywhere? I mean, you know, a couple of of those, like the unifying elements are are really that – you know, when communities are resourced, when there are resources available, crime goes down. And this is, you know, you can look at statistics, you can look at lived experience, you can, you know, quantifiable and quantitative data. Across the board, the communities that have the most resources are the safest, where people know each other, where people, you know, work together, where there's, you know, housing, food, clothing, education, jobs, and all of that. The other thing is that police are not equipped to deal with the majority of the things that they're called to do. So, you know, there's all kinds of statistics also where the likelihood for violence increases, you know, exponentially when an armed police officer is present at, you know, on a call. So, you know, if we really want people to be taken care of, you know, as far as like, you know, mental health and, and, uh, social work and, and things like that, it's better to send people who are actually trained to do that. And, you know, police are, are and they'll say this, they're not trained to, to deal with, you know, mental health breakdowns and, and a lot of the things that they're trained to deal with. They're trained to command and control and, um, you, you know, control populations, suppress uprisings, you know, um, insert themselves in, altercations, but there's always the potential and likelihood that things will become more violent or it will traumatize the people uh, who need the most help. And, you know, so this is across the board. And, and one of the things in, um, in the film, Professor Dr. L. Jones from Halifax, Nova Scotia, co-authored a 200-page report on what it would take to actually detask, remove tasks from police that they're not trained to do and invest in the other things we've been talking about. And, you know, she was saying even when she interviewed police officers, you know, they, they were like, look, we're traumatized by a lot of these mental health calls. We, we're not trained to do this. We're not, we're not prepared to do this. And it, you know, causes them harm. Um, the, one last thing is that Alex Vitale, who's a professor uh, in, in uh, New York, um, was saying it also, you know, this is also about officer safety because the less calls they're going to, the, the less likelihood that they're going to be, you know, attacked or victims of violence as well. 
So that brings me to is policing the best answer to problems that occur in many neighborhoods. And let's talk a little bit about what some of the police in the documentary referred to as traumatizing experiences for them. They go through training and they're put in a situation, a life threatening situation, perhaps or whatever. And then when they go out on a real call and the way one of the younger police officers explained Mm -hmm. how that felt to be face to face and encounter trying to deal with something that the academy hadn't thoroughly prepared them for. What is your advice, suggestions, or or call to action for policing when it is something above and beyond what they are trained to handle? Do you think the mental health uh, support system along with police are the answer, or what do you think should be done when a call is made? Right. Well, I mean, there's a couple things to, to that. You know, one of the things, and, and this comes from my conflict resolution background, is that you know, you can tell what a community, a society, what people are committed to by the results that they're producing. Um, the United States by far incarcerates more people than, you know, any other country in the world. Um, you know, the gun violence and the, you know, rates of violence and all of that are significantly higher. Um, and so as far as what's appropriate, you know, what What a lot of abolitionists talk about and what's talked about in the film is that, you know, it should be up to the communities uh, what they need and who addresses what. Um, when we talk about police training, on the average across the country in the United States, in, in police academies, 60 hours of training at least are dedicated to firearms training. Only eight hours are dedicated to de-escalation. And often that comes at the very end when they're doing role-playing exercises, which is talked about in the film. Uh, former LAPD officer Hadia Kennedy talks about, you know, at the very end, that's when they started practicing interacting with suspects and victims and things like that. And, and in the film, she's like, where was that training? Because once they get out on the street, it's, you know, there's the training in the academy. There's a training on the street where they have to prove themselves to their uh, commanding officers. They have to prove themselves to their uh, fellow officers. They have to prove that they're worthy of, you know, being on the street, that they can be trusted by their, you know, by their other officers. And often that trust is built by getting in fights, arresting people, um, being, uh, you know, dominant and commanding, which does not lead to trust with the public. And and as the former officer spoke about in the film, it was actually traumatizing to her because she was placed in this role where she had to be, you know, like barking at people and, mm-hmm. you know, but you, and, and, but the, you can't really do that in all situations. So there's, you know, there's this hypervigilance that's trained into officers that every step could be their last and every altercation could turn violent. And so when you're walking around armed, uh, highly, you know, on edge that anything could turn deadly at any moment when most, most of their calls don't, you know, it just, it perpetuates the, this breakdown in the relationship between, you know, quote, protecting, serving their community and actually serving and protecting their community. Mm-hmm. It becomes more of a, you know, you do what I say. And if you don't, I'm going to, you know, beat you up, lock you up, 
whatever. And, right. and that just doesn't, you know, it doesn't promote trust. It doesn't keep communities safe. It just makes things worse. Well, I think reimagining safety actually stimulates a lot of thinking about policing alternatives. And as we begin to have conversations in our communities, perhaps we will come up with some alternatives that will allow us to live in a safer community. We only have a few minutes left, and and I would like to invite you to a second half of this because it really is an awakening experience for for our communities, for our listeners, and for getting control of the police department and thinking before we dial 911. 911 usually isn't the number that we need to call when there's situations in our home. So once we start working together, things can change when you know the impacts and you know what needs to be changed. How would you like to wrap up today's um, interview, Matthew, and leave our listeners with a couple of important takeaways. What what do you feel we can tell our listeners who um, are confused about whether we need to step up policing or down or whatever? Yeah, well, a couple things. I mean, first of all, there, you know, there are already organizations uh, across the United States that are doing work where they, where they send out mental health professionals and social workers instead of police. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, Star in Denver, Colorado, just to name a few. And in those, uh, you know, with those groups, um, police have not been called once. And those organizations have actually saved those cities uh, like millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So it does work. There are places that it's working. You, you know, I would say I would love for your listeners to, you know, visit our website, reimaginingsafetymovie.com, and you can learn more about the film. There's also a resources page where, you know, people can find out more about what are the alternatives and can find screenings near you and can even host screenings, you know, where they're at. So reimaginingsafetymovie.com is a great place to start. Awesome. We really appreciate your time. I think the best thing you could have done for that class is to create this documentary that I think is going to stimulate a lot of change, a better understanding, and I look forward to the next time we talk and to hear how the organizational structure is freeing us one community at a time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. KKFI is hiring. We are now accepting applications for a bookkeeper office administrator position at KKFI's offices at 39th and Main in Midtown, Kansas City. This is a full-time 32 hours per week position that is responsible for supporting the administrative and financial needs of our growing organization. For more details, including required skills and how to apply, please go online to kkfi.org forward slash jobs. July 10 is the deadline for Jackson County homeowners to appeal reassessments. Some homeowners have seen their assessments double, reportedly forcing some to sell. Jackson County has an automated online appeal filing system. If you cannot find that, email boardofequalization at jacksongov.org or call 816-881-3309. This message is a public service of KKVI.
Thank you for listening to KKFI. We are now adding new content to our social media sites every day. So be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901FM. And thanks for supporting KKFI since 1988. Now the calendar for the week of June 19th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri provides free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Tuesday, June 20th, in the morning, there's a court watch at Eastern Jackson County Courthouse in Independence, Missouri, Division 16, with Judge Mardo Rolden presiding at the trial of Ian McCarthy. Please learn more by calling Missourians to abolish the death penalty at 816-931-4177. Wednesday, June 21st at noon, Clean Slate Advocate Training is a virtual event hosted by Empower Missouri. Are you interested in learning more about the Missouri Clean Slate Campaign? More info at empowermissouri.org. Saturday, June 24th at 10 a.m., become an ambassador for local control of the Kansas City Police Department. That's a Moore Square virtual event. More info at moresquare.org. Saturday, June 24th, Missourians to Abolish the Death Penalty annual membership meeting and program is virtual and in person. Learn more by calling them at 816-931-4177. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Stay safe. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We'll now return to our program. Okay, thank you for joining us. This is Greg Lubo and... Today, my guest is Mike Von Kurt. He is a campaign slash deputy director for Kansas Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. And before that, he was with the Kansas Coalition Against the Death Penalty. And um, so today we're going to be talking about some issues that Kansas Appleseed is working on. They have a campaign called Just, J-U-S-T, which focuses on both youth justice and adult justice. And they also have a couple other campaigns. One is called Thriving, and the other relates to voter engagement. 
I think we'll probably only have time to talk about some of the just campaign and perhaps have him back on another time for the other campaigns. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Craig. Happy to be here. Tell us, let's start with the Juvenile um, Justice Reform Act. I think that passed in 2015, and there was some legislation this year to try to roll back some of that. Tell us a few of the highlights of the Reform Act and what this new legislation attempted to do, and did they succeed or did it fail? Well, so, yes, back in 2015 and culminating in uh, passage in 2016, Kansas passed a, a pretty comprehensive reform of our youth justice system that really took the state from a position where we were the fifth highest incarcerator of children per capita uh, of all the 50 states and tried to refocus resources towards community-based services rather than relying on detention and out-of-home placements. So that reform encompassed a lot of changes. There were case length limits. There was a sentencing matrix um, that helped uh, keep judicial decisions within certain guidelines. There were caps placed on how long kids could be detained, um, how long they could have in terms of the overall case length limits. Um, you know, the research shows that keeping kids in the system longer does not does not make um, does not yield better outcomes, and so the focus was really trying to uh, to use you know kind of a corporate word to like right size the youth justice system and really using the data and research that is um, most recent and uh, you know showing the best outcomes. Focus on on serving kids in communities with positive behavioral supports rather than putting them in jail or sending them to group home placements. So that was the reform um, that happened in 2016. It was staged over several years of implementation. And then, um, you know, every year there's been bills that have looked at that reform, um, you know, whether it's, it's, it's typically specific aspects of the reform. Did they go far enough? Did they go too far? Um, but there hasn't really been too many substantive changes to that um, reform act until this year. There had been a few uh, smaller tweaks along the way, but, but nothing as substantial as what happened this year uh, with House Bill 2021, which went through a lot of changes. You know, it went through the Senate, um, certainly hit a bunch of roadblocks where, where senators had a lot of questions. Ultimately, it was resurrected and, and went, went, it was passed and signed by the governor. Um, but the, the key takeaway for what has changed or, or what's going to be changing, you know, implementation, I guess, is probably July 1st if I remember correctly, um, 
but there are some really key changes. First, the uh, use of detention, putting kids in jail uh, as a sanction for violations, uh, technical violations of probation, as well as other violations of probation. So it gets kind of confusing with the youth justice system, but this essentially is going to make it easier for judges to sanction kids by putting them in jail for violations of probation, um, whether those are technical in nature or serious in nature. Is there, now, a, Mike, oh, is there a time limit on that? Like in the adult system, they have, although they have modified that to uh, three-day yeah. and, and six-day sanctions. Yeah, so that's essentially kind of what they're, they're using. Um, we really oppose this this decision to bring these sanctions back, at least without some further study. We, we didn't see any evidence or data that showed these sanctions are going to be effective to, to really solve the problems that people were expressing to the legislature. But that's beside the point. So um, there's a bunch of different rules on times, but this bill in particular now allows judges to, for whether the violation is, is technical or not, send a kid uh, for their first violation for 24 hours, second violation, I believe, is 48 hours, and then the third violation, I think, is, uh, right, it changed throughout the way. It's either one week or two weeks for the third violation. Um, and so, uh, again, we heard a lot from people talking about kids that are that are having problematic behaviors, they're out of control. Um, though, you know, a dip in detention may buy a, a reprieve of some sort, there's no evidence that we saw that 24 or 48 hours is going to be an effective tool to help that child truly overcome whatever behavior issue they're having. But uh, regardless, that is the change that was made. So there's going to be kind of these quick dip sanctions for kids. Uh, and keep in mind, technical violations of probation can be as minor as missing a meeting, uh, missing a, a session of, you know, whatever kind of counseling you've been assigned to, getting caught with cigarettes if you're too young, or a vape pen if you're too young, which we know is a, is a big deal. So, um, Or not making a, a restitution payment. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Any any violation could be sanctioned with these quick dips, um, and so we 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 know that this is going to put more kids in jail, and we don't see the evidence that this is going to lead to better outcomes for kids. So that's one big change. Uh, now, keep in mind, before this bill passed and after the Reform Act passed, judges did have the ability to send kids to jail for violations of probation that constituted new new crimes, right? So if they weren't, quote-unquote, a technical violation, which is, you know, whether it's administrative or a status offense, meaning uh, like the cigarettes thing, you're too young to have cigarettes, but if you were an adult, it would not be a, a, an issue or, or uh, missing school, uh, you know, a, uh, a truancy deal. Those could all lead to kids getting sent to jail, and I'm not sure that's the right path. 
but that's a big change. Um, but before this change, judges did have the ability to send kids to jail for a bunch of reasons. I, I want to be clear about that. Um, another important and, and under is, this oh, under this modification. This just gives the judges the option of using those sanctions, or is it mandatory? It is. It would be an optional sanction. Um, and so along the way, there was some language put in there uh, to help, I think, put some guardrails in, in terms of uh, these sanctions are to be used for kids that are demonstrating escalating behaviors in a it's a, a series of different categories. It's like aggressive, uh, threatening, life-threatening drug use, etc. cetera. Um, but we have some real questions, you know, from a, a policy perspective as to how that's going to be interpreted and implemented by judges. Um, you know, what does it mean for a teenager to be displaying escalating aggression? You know, what, what measures are we going to use to determine that? Um, you know, you can think of situations that, that certainly would uh, constitute that in your own mind. But judge to judge, district to district, how is that going to be implemented? We'll have to wait and see um, on that. But there are two other uh, important changes I'd like to highlight. One is it uh, essentially did away with case length limits in that it is now going to allow judges to extend the term of probation beyond what the Reform Act had established as an overall case length limit if the child has failed to complete um, some ordered programming and the delay or failure to complete is deemed to be the fault of the child. So there's a you know like a lot of interpretation that's going to go into that as well. We'll have to wait and see how judges uh, interpret that. What does it mean to be the fault of the kid? They missed the meeting, but they didn't have a ride. Is that the fault of the juvenile? Is it not? Um, you know, th there's going to be some gray area in in issues like that. Um, and then another big piece that we don't really have a full understanding at all of how it will be implemented is uh, a piece about essentially kids that are that are demonstrating uh, problematic behaviors, behaviors that could result in uh, criminal involvement, uh, would be eligible to receive an undetermined assessment that's to be determined by the the Secretary of Department of Children and Families, and they would then be administered this to-be-determined assessment, and based on the results of that to-be-determined assessment, would potentially be eligible for more uh, programming and services. Right now, kids that that don't essentially step through the front door of whether it's the child welfare or the youth justice system and don't start that process by getting assessed, um, oftentimes still have some problematic behaviors or difficult behaviors for caregivers to deal with, but aren't eligible for different therapeutic things that 
that kids that have taken that step into those systems would be eligible for. Now, as you can probably glean from how I described it, lots of to-be-determined elements there. Um, we have questions about how kids would be referred for these assessments, who would be able to refer the kids, um, are they compelled to take the assessments, are they not, what happens, you know, do they have choices about, um, like I said, taking the assessment, enrolling in services, who's making those decisions, and then what assessment are they being given. Um, the, the legislature saw fit to, to pass that bill with all those questions lingering. We had advocated that, that we should press pause and take a, a summer and fall to study the issue further and come up with some more clear understanding of what was being proposed. Um, but they, they went ahead and passed that bill anyway. Okay. The, Traditionally, at least when I was practicing juvenile court law, a huge number of the juvenile offenders were also, they weren't necessarily recognized as children in need of care, but that's really what they were. They grew up in dysfunctional homes, et cetera. Sure. Does this, any of this new legislation really does it provide additional services for the children in need of care and recognize that that's what they're dealing with, or is it still just really focusing mostly on the offender aspects? Well, I think that's what the intent of this, like, to-be-determined assessment piece is of this bill, and that's why we really wanted to, to have some more time to to flesh this out so that we could make sure it was going to achieve what we all want it to achieve, which is having services available to the kids that need it, right? Full stop. Uh, whether they're, whether they're kids that are system involved or not, um, we want kids and families that need support in Kansas to be able to access those and access them in communities that are their own or are close by. And so um, that's that I think that's the intent of the assessment piece. I you know, right now I don't see this bill at all getting us um a true solution for that. Uh it remains to be seen if this is even a step forward at all. Um in my opinion, with the detention changes that are incorporated here, it may well be uh, a big step back for the state. But again, there's so much that needs to be seen in terms of how judges interpret this, how they use it. Um, and, and yeah, the goal here is to get kids services, but I don't believe the language in this bill is going to get that done. I think we're going to be back here next year um, trying to figure out some more ideas that that might move the ball um, in, in more meaningful ways. And when the original Juvenile Reform Act passed and became effective in 2016, I know we talked about that, and 
one of the concerns then was whether or not legislature would fund the programs they were creating so that they would actually accomplish something. What has the funding been like since then? And do you see this new legislation is making any changes, improving the funding, or is it going to get worse or what? Um, so uh, it's it's complicated. What, I guess overall, like the funding has been there. Kansas was really unique in that it created this quote-unquote lockbox, which is, is not a real thing when it comes to money in a legislative sense. But they tried to mark this money in a special account for reinvestment in communities. And uh, every year, millions of dollars flow out of that account and, and are invested in resources that serve kids in their communities. So, um, you know, you'd have to do a little bit of math. But, I mean, it's been tens of millions of dollars reinvested in communities. So in, on one hand, yes, that has been great. Um, on another hand, it hasn't been as much as it could be. So, for example, there's been a lot of debate over the last few years about what is uh, a quote-unquote surplus budget in that account. Uh, but there's, there's a few different ideas about how to use that money. Um, there have been ideas about investing in a lot more substance abuse, mental health programming, different supports for families. Um, some of that has come to fruition and some of it hasn't. Uh, so I would say, you know, overall, it's been okay. It could be much better, much, much better. And it hasn't been a problem of funding. It hasn't been because the legislature has said, no, we don't have enough money for this or, or the budget's too tight. The money has been there. It's been there consistently. The debate has just been around how it gets used and the statutory language around, you know, these guardrails for how this money is used. So, um, you know, the Juvenile Justice Oversight Committee, which is a body that was created during the reform uh, back in 2016, had kind of looked into the future and, and estimated some costs and, and kind of mapped out how that money could be used. And the, the vision that they and the Department of Corrections had come up with was one where it's, they didn't want to invest too much too quickly and then exhaust all of the money and then not be able to continue funding programs that were good across the state. And so they kind of took, I guess, a more measured approach but that resulted in money building up in the account where some people were saying, well, that's for, you know, 10 years down the road. Others are saying, why is that money not being used now? Because there are needs now. So there's, there's been ongoing debate. Uh, uh, the, the short answer is it's been okay. It could be much better. And there continues to be debate about um, what the best use of that, that money is. 
but Kansas is is unique that we actually have a surplus budget and we have money that is carved out for these purposes. It's it's honestly just bureaucratic red tape and political quibbling that that throws roadblocks up for using this money for for its maximum good. Do you have any figures on um, the number of juveniles, the percentage of juveniles that go from juvenile offenders to adult offenders? And specifically what I want to know is, has the Juvenile Justice Reform Act had any positive impact on reducing the percentage of kids going on to the adult system? Well, that's a very good question, and I didn't prepare that data today, so I don't want to speak in too many absolutes. Um, but I think what what we have seen is that for the majority of kids that touch the the youth justice system, the changes of the reforms and the focus on keeping kids at home, giving them services in their community, and the philosophy that we don't have to overpunish a a light touch for um, for for minor crimes is okay has yielded really good outcomes. I think we see um, very low recidivism rates in that population. Um, you know, in in young people that have committed more serious crimes and what the rates look like versus 10 years ago um, in terms of going on to become adult offenders, I have no idea. I don't I don't know if we have a good track, a, a good data mechanism to truly track that. You know, what would the standard be? Um, it's like if, if that child ever went to jail as an adult um, or did would it have to be within, you know, 10 years? So there's some questions about how you would track that. Um, I, I would say that for the deepest end of the system, kids that are committing serious felonies, there weren't that many changes in terms of what happens. Like, they still go to the youth prison. The sentence limits that were imposed by the Reform Act did not apply to the most serious offenses. Um, So those kids with your homicide charges and those uh, you know, what do they call off-grid offenses, the most serious offenses that we can think of, those are all kind of carved out of that reform. Those those time limits and all of that stuff uh, typically don't apply to those um, upper-level crimes. So not a lot actually changed for that level of the system. Um, like I said, I don't think there's good data to say one way or another, but my what I can say is that we aren't bringing kids that commit low-level or misdemeanor offenses 
too deep into the system anymore. Mike, we, we are out of time. objectively a good thing. We are out of time for those who just joined us. You, we've been talking Mike Vonkert, campaign director at Kansas Appleseed Center for Justice. And, Mike, I'll get in touch with you and maybe have you back on in August sometime. For sure. Well, we've got lots of folks from Appleseed that would be happy to join. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's the 420 Drug War News. This is part seven of my interview with Dr. Jean Goulard, the Portuguese drug czar. Separated from the criminal system and the, the, the systems of the police, of the judiciary police and also all that, we have a, our own registration that we do not share at all with other kind of uh, authorities from law enforcement. Now, as I understand it, the... Uh, there, if a policeman catches someone with what you guys have determined is a 10-day supply, 10-day supply or less, that they won't be arrested, that they will be requested to visit the dissuasion committee. Yes, and give us an idea of what those amounts are, uh, what a 10-day amount might be of various drugs. Uh, for drugs, for cannabis, 25 grams. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I am quoting by heart, but I think it's that heroin, one gram. Mm -hmm. uh, cocaine, I think it's one gram. Also, hashish, uh, five grams. Uh, and you know, we we know that this is a long-lasting table of uh, of amounts, and we are aware that we must update uh, those amounts. Should because things have changed, even the purity of substances has uh, have changed. Yeah. But in any in any case, having that objective uh, threshold uh, seems to be very useful because it avoids that uh, the policeman has to act as a judge on spot, okay? Because if you do not have that objective uh, threshold, it's very subjective, okay? You are, uh, you are caught with a small amount of, of drugs, but, uh, okay, you are uh, good-looking, good families, uh, uh, white uh, young man, okay, go in peace, you are just a user. But if you happen to be a Span Spanish or, or a, you did a uh, gypsy, yeah, a gypsy or whatever, probably will be charged. So mm. having that objective limit is important, in my view, to avoid that discretionality. Yes. And then uh, you may have on you a bigger amount of substance of illicit substances. You go for a trial, you go, you go for a criminal, the criminal system. But is, it is in the criminal system that someone has to make an evidence that you are selling. Mm. Because if there is no evidence, the judge may send you to the commission, and that's all. To hear the full interview with Portugal's drug czar, please go to the March 30 edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm Dean at DrugTruth.net. Problem. 
What am I gonna do now? Am I gonna make it? Somewhere, somehow. Well, maybe I'm not supposed to know. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.